I don't know if I'm watching them or they're watching me, but I guess we'll watch each other. I'm an alcoholic, and my home group is the Third Tradition Group in West Palm Beach, and uh, I'm so Hi, everyone. Before I forget, I want to thank Fred for um, calling me and asking me to come and share at your 13th annual gratitude treat. This is great. I love Southern AA. And uh, I spoke in Columbus, uh, Georgia, uh, this last uh, October, and uh, the men there were just wonderful. And the men here, I just love your Southern gentlemen. And uh, they say, yes, ma'am, and no, man, and open doors and get your coffee. And before I leave here, I want to talk to you Al-Anons and see how you got him to do all that. Because uh, I've been working on my husband for a long time now, and he's an alcoholic, and I'm not getting very far. Uh, this is great. Every morning when I wake up, if I read the obituary column and I'm not in it, anything after that's a gift. Uh, because I should have, by rights, been dead a long time ago. But by the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps of Recovery, I haven't had a drink since December 14, 1973, and for that I'm eternally grateful. Um, I did start drinking when I was three or four. I'm not one of the bottle babies. Um, I'm a, actually a late bloomer by today's standards. I, I got started, and now they're coming in at that age, and uh, that's great. We have a lot of young people down in South Florida, a lot of young people. We get them down there 13, 14, 15, 16, and I think it's wonderful that they're coming in that young because they have a long life ahead of them. Um, I have a wonderful home group. I'm so proud of my home group. We're very active. We have probably 45 or 50 active members. We have to vote in chairman of the month. We have to vote in everything. We have four and five people that stand for any office. We create offices. And these are young people that are getting involved. We create jobs. We keep them busy. And they're enthusiastic and they're happy. I mean, these two girls here took off work to come and be with me this weekend because they love Alcoholics Anonymous and they respect the 12 traditions and they want to be a part of it. And I think it's wonderful. You've given me a life that I never had prior to coming here. I'm a West Virginia hillbilly and I'm stubborn and hard-headed and I learn slow, but I learn good. And when I learn something, it sticks. And the one thing I've learned, and it's so simple, and I ask an old man, how do you stay sober? And he said, if you don't pick up the first drink, for one day, there's no way you can get drunk, and it's a simple. But it's taken me a long time to learn how to live happily sober. And that's where the 12 steps of recovery have come in into my life. My book says that uh, in God's hands, even the darkest past can be a great possession because it is the key to life and happiness for others. With it, I can help avert misery and death for them. And that's a powerful statement, and that's why I'm here tonight, and for no other reason. I don't consider this entertainment. I consider I'm trying to carry a message, hopefully to one person here tonight, that if you have an alcohol problem, Alcoholics Anonymous has the solution, because that's what was given to me. By rights, I should have been dead or in prison with my past. I drank with people who drank Sterno, um, canned heat, and I drank with thieves, um, and by rights, I should have been found laying in a dead, dead in an alley somewhere. But I'm alive standing before you tonight. I didn't start drinking till I was 19. As I say, I was a late bloomer. I, I should say I did have one drunk at 12 back in uh, West Virginia on homebrew. Um, about a cup, and I was plastered. And I swore I'd never drink again because I got so sick. And I didn't drink again till I was 19. So I like to say I had seven years of continuous sobriety and then I had my one and only slip. <laughs> but I was raised back in the hills um, in a little town called uh, 
Pinch, West Virginia, which was outside of Quick, which was outside of Charleston. And it was, it was way back in a mountain. It was in a holler. And uh, moonshine and homebrew were everyday facts of life. Um, and getting drunk was an everyday fact of life. And I did not like it. And I swore I would not be like them when I grew up. And as soon as I could, I was going to get out of that holler, and I was going to be different. And the odd thing is I did get out of there, but I became much worse than them. Because in my alcoholism, I did things that my grandmother and my aunts would never have thought of doing. But I, w I left there when I was a teenager. We moved to Ohio, my mother and my father and my brother. I am the only person in my family recovering in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I consider it a true gift. I have had uncles and aunts who have died from this illness. But we moved to Ohio, and I, I did not have any living skills. I knew nothing. I was a, a country bumpkin. I wasn't told the facts of life. Um, if you would have asked me about the birds and the bees, I would have thought they were the flying things that landed in trees. I knew nothing about anything. And so when I moved to Toledo, Ohio, I was a sitting duck. And the first boy that came along and said he loved me, um, I was just awestruck. And so by the time I was 15, I, I was pregnant. And I can remember, I didn't, I didn't know I was pregnant, um, the neighbor told me. <laughs> and I told her I was sick and the symptoms, and she said, my God, you're pregnant. And I said, how'd that happen? And uh, I asked the doctor that question uh, many, many times after that. Uh, because I had seven children by the time I was 23 years old. Um, and I don't know if I had all those kids because I drank, or if I drank because I had all those kids. Uh, they just sort of came hand in hand. If I had them all today, I'd probably drink. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. When I look back at our life, it's a wonder that any of us are here. But anyway, I started having babies, and this, this husband, I was 16 when we got married. He was 17. He was not equipped, and neither was I. And we started having all these children uh, every year. I had a child every year for seven years. It was my yearly vacation. <laughs> and they knew me by my first name in the hospital. And... Uh, we had these children, and he wasn't equipped, and he started drinking, and uh, he started um, beating me up. I was a battered woman long before it was ever talked about, and I didn't drink. And I became very ill. I, I became emotionally ill, and I became physically ill. I weighed like 89 pounds. I was so thin, so sick. I mean, I looked, uh, it was pathetic. My bones stuck through my clothing. I have pictures of it. It's, it's, it was sad. I mean, I looked like I was uh, 50 at 19. It was, it was, it was terrible. And uh, I went to my doctor one day, and I said, you know, I, I just can't take this anymore. I'm ready, I'm ready for a nervous breakdown. And he said, well, I want you to, to, uh, to drink a couple of beers a day and uh, drink one with your dinner and one at bedtime. It'll help you sleep, and it'll help put weight on you. And I said, okay. I mean, that was a prescription, so that was all right. And then he said, I want you to take these Valiums every day for your nerves. So that's and so I went and got my medicine, and I went home, and I began my way to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can remember my first drink. I can remember that first beer, Buckeye beer. And uh, they've gone out of business. It's not because I quit drinking, because I, I didn't drink it that long, but um, it was horrible beer. But it tasted awful and it smelled awful, but I can remember the feeling, the feeling of well-being, the feeling of it might be all right now, the feeling of it's not that bad, the sense of well-being. 
And that's what the book says we drink for, essentially the feeling. And that's why I drank. I wanted that feeling. The only thing is you have to continue to drink more to reach that feeling. And then something happens. You pass that feeling. And I had my first drink, my first drunk, and, and then my first blackout. But I drank that way daily. Unless I was in jail or in a hospital, I drank daily for the, la for the next years until I came here. And I didn't get into trouble right away. I, 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 um, I stayed at home with the kids and I drank. On my 21st birthday, I decided to go out into a bar and uh, try some hard liquor. And there's one thing about me and vodka, we do not get along. I mean, I drink vodka and I'm either in a, in a terrible blackout and very violent or I'm passed out. I could be sitting on a bar stool drinking and I could drink a couple of Ron Rican rums and I would fall off the bar stool, passed out, and would not wake up until the next day. And they'd just carry me and put me in the car, lock me in, and they'd go on and finish their drinking and I would just be in the car, passed out. So I learned real early to stay with beer. So I'm here to tell you if you, if you just drink, you can be an alcoholic. And for years I said, I'm not an alcoholic, I only drink beer. But when you drink a case of it, um, you get the same effect. Booze is booze no matter what it comes in, whether it's beer, vodka, whatever. Alcohol is alcohol. And uh, I, I didn't have the craving right away. I did towards the end of my drinking, but not right away. Uh, I did have the obsession, though. I thought daily about drinking. I woke up thinking about it, and I went to bed thinking about it. It became a constant companion, and I kept having these children. By the time I was 21, I was already doing things that I found others guilty of. I was breaking my values, things that I was ashamed of. And uh, I'm not ashamed of my past today because of that statement in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I'm not ashamed. I'm not proud, but I'm not ashamed. These are the facts about me. This is what it has taken to get me where I'm at today, and it's okay. And, um, but I found myself very guilty at 21, so I went in and I counted out all those values I had left, and there were 75 of them, and so I took all of them. And I woke up about three days later in a, in a ward strapped to a bed with no doorknobs on my side of the door. And when I left that hospital three weeks later or two weeks later, I left differently and I left drinking differently. And from then until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I can honestly say I lost all interest in living. I lost all interest in anything or anyone. The only thing I cared about was getting drunk. I don't know if I was already a full-blown alcoholic by now, and it's not important. But what I did was get as drunk as I could, as often as I could. Now, this husband of mine is still uh, beating me up, and so I, did, you know, I would sit and I would drink, and I would think, I have to get rid of him. And I couldn't get a divorce. The doctor said get a divorce, and that was too complicated. So I thought, well, I'll just kill him. And so I would sit and think about ways to get rid of him. And so one night I decided, well... First of all, I'm going to teach him a lesson. And when he comes home tonight, he is, this will be the last night he ever hits me again. And so he was about six foot one and weighed 230. He was a big man compared to me. So I put a footstool behind the front door. And I got out my big iron skillet my grandmother had given me. And I stood behind that door and waited for him to come through with the lights out. And when he came through, I laid him out. And I cracked the back of his head open, and he started bleeding, and, and I thought I killed him. And, uh, but I didn't. I took him to the hospital and got him stitched up. 
And he came back home, and I put him to bed, and he went to sleep, and I, I got a big butcher knife out, and I went up, and I crawled on his chest, and I stuck it to his ear, and I said, wake up, wake up. And he woke up, and I said, you move, and I'll cut you from ear to ear. And I proceeded to tell him what I would do to him if he ever hit me, and he never hit me again. Now, I don't suggest you do that, but it worked for me. And I got such a feeling of power that it became, you know, the book says that we didn't have any, uh, our lives had no meaning, mine suddenly took on new meaning. And it was how I could get even with him. And um, he lost his first name, he just became him. And I started finding ways to get even with him. And I can remember uh, many days it would rain, I would throw all his clothes out in the front yard and do a war dance on them. I would be standing at the sink washing dishes and he would be standing in back of me saying something and I would fling knives. I would jank out all the dishes and throw at him. It just became horrible. And I can remember one night we were all out drinking because we used to run around with a gang of men. We lived in the ghetto and we would all run around together and uh, I want you to know that at this time my oldest daughter is raising my children. She has taken on the role at nine years old of mother and I'm not proud of that. She is a beautiful woman today and an excellent um, but we would run around and uh, one night we were out into a bar celebrating my, his birthday and uh, he was drunk and we all left and he was walking behind us with his eyes closed just following our voices and they had dug up all the sewers in the street there in Toledo and they had, uh, now looking back it was like a huge hole, it might have been a small hole. And uh, the pipes looked this big around. I don't know, they might have been this big around And when I was drunk. But I know it was a big hole, and I know there were barricades around it, and there were a lot of pipes in it. And I thought to myself, you know, if I remove those barricades, he'll walk in that hole, he'll kill himself, and I'll get his money. His and so we quick moved the barricades, and we went around, and by God, he walked right in that hole. Now he just disappeared. And he didn't come up. So we went on home and finished celebrating his birthday. <laughs> and in the morning when I woke up, the phone was ringing and I looked at the bodies around the floor and he wasn't one of them. So I figured he must have killed himself. And it was probably the police department calling me to tell me that I was a, a widow. So I prepared myself for the news and I would cry and I would quick run down and get his little bit of insurance money and then I was going to go on a good toot. But I answered the phone and it was him. He had crawled out of the hole and broke somebody's window and got arrested. So I had to go down and get him out of jail. And I tried many, many other ways to kill him. I tried running over him uh, one time with a car and I hit a light pole. And um, it was becoming expensive. And, and he was still, didn't have a scratch on him. Uh, the last time I think we tried to kill him, my, um, my children were in on it. My oldest daughter, who was like nine or 10 at the time, uh, we laugh about it today. It wasn't funny when I had to go make my ninth step to him, but we laugh about it today. But he was home drunk one night and he was in the living room uh, demanding him. We had made a pot of chili. And my daughter said, let's poison him. And I said, okay, and then we looked, we didn't have any poison. But we did have a can of lighter fluid so we poured lighter fluid in his bowl of chili and we covered it up with red and yellow hot peppers and put some crackers on top and we served it to him. 
and he ate it, and he drank his beer, and we're all in the kitchen peering around the corner. And my oldest daughter said, well, Mom, isn't he going to fall off the couch or, or something? I mean, he's just in there belching. Isn't he, you know, isn't <laughs> this man, isn't he going to do something? And I said, well, I don't know, but don't worry. When he lights up a cigarette, he'll blow up. <laughs> he got sick, but he's still alive. He's causing havoc in somebody's life, I'm sure. But it's not mine. Um... That was a horrible time of my life in all reality. Um, I went into a bar one night during this time, and uh, I woke up the next day, and I had a costume in one hand and a, a business card in another, and I, I was a go-go dancer, and I uh, called the phone number. I didn't even know where at or what time or anything, and uh, I had signed a contract uh, to dance at this bar for six weeks. I went in that night, and I, and I did this for the next five years. I... Uh, I can honestly say at that time I quit going to jail for little things like drunken disorderly and inciting to riot. We used to, to love to start fights in bars and, and uh, disturbing the peace and things like that. I, I was a, a loudmouth drunk by this time. If the, if the police came out and asked me to be quiet, I refused. You know, and I would demand they arrest me because I knew my rights. And they would. Um, and then I would not want to get out of the police car, maybe kick one in the shins. And, and so I, would, I was getting locked up a lot, just overnight. But when I started go-go dancing, I, I, uh, I stopped getting arrested. And I just literally lived in the bars. And I can remember one night my daughter called me in a bar and she said, Mom, Dad's passed out in a chair with a cigarette. The chair's on fire. I can't get him out of it. And I said, let him burn and hung the phone up. Didn't even go home to see if those children were okay. If it wouldn't have been for my neighbors, I don't know what would have happened. And this is what alcoholism had done to me. Because when I was growing up as a little girl in West Virginia, I wanted to be a good mother, a good wife, a good citizen. I went to church three times a week. And alcoholism was taking me to depths that I didn't know. It was warping my perception, my thinking, my feelings, my spirituality was gone. I was becoming a, just a drunk, a lush, without any care for anyone. And I know it's because of alcoholism, because I'm not that way today. And so this is what booze was doing for me. One night I got arrested for a DWI, and on the way home, um, they, they put me in jail. And this time it's for three days, and they took my license away. And while I was laying in jail, I decided that I needed to get rid of him because he was my problem, and if I could just get rid of him, I'd be okay. And it seemed to me that it was always something external and nothing internal. And I can understand at that time of my life, had it not been for alcohol, I don't know what would have happened to me. I truly believe there was a time in my life that alcohol actually saved me and then turned around and threatened to take the very life away from me. But at that time, I couldn't see that, and I just knew it was his fault. His, his, he was the reason. If I got rid of him, I'd be okay. And so when I got out of jail, I filed for a divorce. And I immediately went to the bar that night to celebrate the fact I had solved my problem. And two weeks later, after my divorce, I was remarried. And this time I was married to a non-alcoholic. And I don't know which is worse, being married to an alcoholic or to a non-alcoholic. But I know one thing, if you're an alcoholic, being married to a non-alcoholic is tough. Because suddenly now someone is watching my drinking, and suddenly now someone's actually... And this marriage lasted until I came to the door. And it was in this marriage to this man who, who was so good to me and my children.
who took us out of that ghetto, out of the slums, and put us in a nice home, in a nice neighborhood, and gave us everything we needed and mostly everything. And by now, my two oldest sons, who are roughly 12 and 13, are being uh, arrested for breaking and entering, grand theft auto. My one son was shot. My other son overdosed at 12 and was in a straitjacket because he tried to jump out of a fourth uh, floor window. And they are a mess. I'm a mess. They're a mess. The, ch the children are a mess. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it was so good to be able to put the traditions of Anonymous into my family life. And I truly believe if you can carry those traditions home and practice them in your family, it's a miracle what it's done to restore my family unit. But at that time, we were all a mess. And uh, the police were always at my house. Uh, there was always a disturbance. We were the black sheep of the neighborhood. When other people were sending their children off to school saying, Johnny and Mary, I love you, and I'll be home baking cookies and milk when you get out of school, I'm getting my children out of jail. And so we became the black sheep of the neighborhood. And it was during this time that I became like a recluse. I, I stayed home and I drank. I drank morning, noon, and night. I got up in the morning with the craving that it talks about in the doctor's opinion. I had to have a drink. And I would begin drinking, and I would drink until that night, and I would pass. And that was the way I lived for the last six months. In honor about December 14, 1970, when I got up that morning, I had a quiet hysteria. I don't know if you know what it's like to live in quiet desperation, but I do. And every day that I lived, I lived in quiet desperation. And I no longer live that way. I live in joy today. Because the book says we believe in having fun. We advocate it. And believe me, I have fun. I mean, there are a lot of people around my home group that think I'm wacko and a little nutsy. And that's okay, because I'm having fun. I cried enough, and I hurt enough people, and now I try to give love so that I can receive love. But in that, on that day, I knew something was different. And I knew that day I would either stop drinking or die. There was no doubt in my mind that something was going to happen. And I had tried psychiatry, church, I had tried everything. And nothing had worked. Nothing had worked. And that night after I got drunk and I went up to my room and I was hysteric, so physically sick. And I went into the bathroom and I was sick. And when I went to get up to walk into my bedroom, I was paralyzed from the waist down. I knew nothing about alcoholic paralysis. All I knew is I could not walk, I could not feel my legs, and I was hysterical, and I dragged myself into the bedroom. And I will never forget that night, as drunk as I was, when I crawled up on the side of my bed, and for the first time in my life, I begged God for help. And a voice filled that room, and all I could hear in my mind was that voice. And that voice said to me, if you're done drinking once and for all, go to the phone and call Alcoholics Anonymous. There are people there that work for me. And that, that quick, that voice was gone. And I get goosebumps today when I think about it. Because that was God's intervention in my life. Because I went to the phone and called you. And the next day, I was brought to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have not had a drink since. What a miracle. I've just described someone to you who drank daily, who seemed hopeless, helpless. And after one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, has not had to have a drink. Miracle. It is for me. And I began my journey into the fourth dimension that it talks about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, it wasn't easy. I was crazy. 
I mean, I came in on this spiritual cloud and I would go to meetings and I would spout off about God and how wonderful it was. And then I would leave the meeting and go meet my boyfriend while my husband was at work. I'm not going to tell you I got perfect real quick. But I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous what's acceptable and what isn't. I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous what I need to do for me if I want to maintain sobriety, and that's to conduct myself in a good, orderly manner. There isn't any problem in my life today or any question I have in my life today that has not already been resolved and put in print for me. And that's what I have found the book to be as a text, and I study it. And I, I, I always inadvertently read something I've never seen before. And I've been reading it for the last 18 years. And it's never been outdated. It's the largest selling book next to the Bible. And it's never been changed. And it's just so ironic how Bill and the forefathers could have come up with this book that so many years later could have. And this began my journey and I joined a home group. The girl that 12-stepped me became my sponsor. We had a lot in common. She was married, I was married. She had children, I had children. She had a husband, I had a husband. She had a boyfriend, I had a boyfriend. She smoked, I smoked. And I said to her one day, I should give up the boyfriend. This isn't right. And she said, now, now, don't give up too much too soon. Approximately a month later, she got drunk. She got drunk. And I can remember the fear running through me as I went to this, to this home group and said, I don't know what to do. My sponsor is drunk. And they said, well, we know a little bit about your sponsor, and we know the things that she's been doing and the things that she hasn't been doing. The boyfriend has to go. If you want to stay sober, you have to conduct yourself. That's what the 12 steps of recovery are all about. That's unacceptable behavior here. Well, it, was, it wasn't easy. And I got another sponsor. I got a sponsor named Doris. And I can remember when I walked up to old Bud down there in the LaGrange group in Toledo, and I said, well, I need another sponsor, and I don't have one, and who do you suggest? I don't really know that many women. And he said, oh, well, I've got just a woman for you. She's sitting right over there. And I looked over, and you have to remember, I came in uh, with black miniskirts and boots up to my knees and two wiglets and long earrings and false eyelashes and, and uh, chains around my waist and uh, just, you know, I mean, I looked like I just came off the street corner. And I looked over at this woman who was a big Indian squaw and she had coal black hair and she had these little beady black eyes and she snarled when she talked and... And, and I looked at her, and she was sitting by herself. There wasn't anybody on either side of her. <laughs> and I looked at Bud, and I said, what on earth makes you think she would be good for me? And he said, take my word for it. She'd be good for you. So I'm... And I looked her up and down, and I looked her over, and I said, well, I need a sponsor, and Bud thinks you'd be good for me. So what do you think? And she looked at me. She looked me up and down and looked me all over. And she kind of snarled when she talked. And she said, well, I'm two years sober and nobody's ever asked me to sponsor them. And I thought, well, I can understand why. <laughs> and I'm really sorry I did. <laughs> and she looked me up and down and said, but you look like a real challenge. So I think I'll take you on. So I used to sit next to Doris. Doris didn't drive. I'd pick her up every night, take her to a meeting, and we'd sit together, and nobody would sit on the side of me, and nobody would sit on the side of her. And uh, 
They used to call us the Bobsy Twins because I was nuts and she was mean. <laughs> but Doris was good for me. She taught me the basics of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't know how to speak. I didn't know how to hold a conversation. No one had ever taught me how to sit at a table and discuss a problem and work through it. My vocabulary was limited to profanity because I came from the streets. And Doris would not allow profanity in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, this is some people's church, and you will dress accordingly, and you will act accordingly, and you will speak accordingly. And one time I used an F word in front of her, and she knocked me up against the wall. <laughs> and I talked to Doris periodically. I have for the last, I've been in Florida since 1977, and I still talk to Doris quite often. And she told me the other day she slapped somebody for saying it, one of her girls. I said, you wouldn't get away with that down here in Florida. Somebody would have you arrested for sponsee abuse. They must have an 800 number for sponsee abuse, I'm sure. But Doris was really good for me. Doris was really, she taught me the basics of Alcoholics Anonymous. She taught me the traditions before the steps because it's, there's two things written before the steps. First, I have to decide I want what you have. And then I have to be willing to go to any length to get it. Then I am ready to take certain steps. And she said, I want you to know what Alcoholics Anonymous is and what it isn't. And if you decide you want what we have, then I will give you the time it takes to go through the 12 steps of recovery. And so I learned about the 12 traditions before I learned about the 12 steps. And I think it's so true because of what it says in the first tradition, that our common welfare must come first. Personal recovery depends upon our unity. And so that's the way Doris raised me. I was very active in my home group, the LaGrange group. And I can remember when I was about five or six months sober, I was told by Bud that you will chair next month. You will be here to make coffee. You will get the donuts. You will set up. And he threw the keys at me. And uh, there was no pussyfooting around. And so that's what I did. Doris went out with me. We got my speakers. And I can remember the first meeting that I sat up, I went running in to make the coffee so that I could go pick up Doris because she didn't drive and bring her to a meeting. And um, I went in with about 30 cups of water and a pound of coffee and I made my first pot of coffee for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went and got Doris and we came back and uh, the old timers started coming in and uh, I love the old timers. They were, they were so wonderful. 25 and 35 years was what they had when I came in, and they were so great. They were so mean to me, but they were so great. And uh, they started getting their coffee, and then they started spitting it out. <laughs> then they started mumbling and grumbling about who messed up their coffee. And I was crushed. My God, I'm trying my first meeting, and I've ruined AA's coffee. And I'll tell you, old timers lose their patience, love, and tolerance when you mess up their coffee. And so we got the meeting started, and the speaker got done, and up there they had comments, and uh, after the talk, you, they comment on your lead, and uh, they were commenting on my speaker's lead, and, and during the meeting, somebody had brought in this drunk. He was so drunk and so sick, and they set him down, and they smirked up, and they got him a cup of my coffee, and they smirked back, and they gave it to him, and they're kind of laughing and snickering because this drunk is sitting there drinking my coffee, which was so thick you could have stood, you know, could have stood a knife up in it. And after the meeting, one of the old-timers said, Well, Dennis, this is your first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. What do you think? And this bleary-eyed drunk looked up and said, 
I don't know, but this is the best damn cup of coffee I've ever had. <laughs> God, how I love newcomers. <laughs> and Dennis didn't drink again. I still say it's because of my coffee. But... And after I got through chairing that meeting, I felt so good. I felt I belonged in Alcoholics Anonymous. I felt a part of. And then I moved to Florida with my husband Dave and our children. And I had to get another sponsor. And I had to get another home group. And I can remember Doris telling me, when you go down there, you get a sponsor, a home group, and a new baby. Those are the three must that you must do. And if you can do those three things, you won't drink. And so that's what I've been. I've been active in Florida ever since. Because I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It's, it's my life. I did not have a life before coming here. The, bu- the book says that we are reborn. But I can honestly say I had no life prior to coming here. You have taught me anything and everything that I know. You have made me what I am. And I, I've been very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I learned through the 12 steps, you know, who I am, what I am, and what I need to do about it. I learned through the ninth steps to become vulnerable, to open up. And being an alcoholic doesn't justify anything I've done, but it explains a lot. It explains a lot. It explains to me that I am sick mentally, spiritually, and physically, and that my perceptions are so far off that I need other guidance. I have a sponsor today who's over 30 years. I call her weekly. And if I don't, which I didn't during the holidays, she tells my girls, your sponsor did not call me this week. And then my girls go, well, how come you can get away with something we can't get away with? See how that works. And uh, she's sober 30 years, and she's got a strong program. She's got My home group, um, as I told you about, is so active. We are so active. And the girls that I sponsor, we get together every Wednesday night. And we just studied the first 164 pages of Alcoholics Anonymous, the book. And now we're, going, we're, now we're finishing up the 12 traditions. And next we're going to study AA Comes of Age. And every week we do a presentation on a defect in a step. And the girls I sponsor bring the girls they sponsor. There's about 15 of us. And we get together every Wednesday night. Because the people that I raise and the people that, I, that they raise in Alcoholics Anonymous, I want them educated. The girls that I sponsor and the girls that they sponsor leave all their andas outside the door. And in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, they introduce themselves only as an alcoholic because this is a singleness of purpose. We're not here for any other reason except to solve our common problem. And we have all found a solution upon which we can absolutely agree in brotherly and harmoniously action. These are not my words. They are words out of the book. So we have found this common solution, which is the 12 steps of recovery. My children, who were so messed up when I came to you, my one son, the oldest boy, was facing prison because he was an alcoholic and a crack addict. My other son was facing prison for the same reasons, embezzlement to further their addictions. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, all my children were a mess. They were such a mess. I had to take all my kids to meetings with me because I didn't know if I would have a home to go to if I didn't. And I believe what it says, you can get sober no matter what to burn into the consciousness of every new man and woman that you can get sober no matter what, because I did. And I would drag these kids to meetings, and they would would get arrested. They would go to jail. It was a mess. They were wards of the state of Ohio until they were 18. 
And my sponsor said to me, it is your responsibility to clean up the debris and the, and the, and the litter from your past. And this is what you have created. This is a consequence of alcoholism. And it's up to you to straighten this mess out. And that's where the 12 steps and the 12 traditions come in. By being able to take these spiritual principles that you have given me, love, acceptance, tolerance, guidance, home to my children, they are all healthy, well adults today, including my two sons. My one son is sell will be celebrating a year of sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous this month. Now this one boy's had a lot of problems. He had two years and he relapsed. But I've watched this boy through AA get married. I've watched him help deliver his son. I watched him help deliver his sister's son. I've watched him join church, quit smoking. I've, I've seen him come to meetings and get And it's a result of me being able to take what you've given me home long enough. It's being an example to him that if he wants to recover, this is where it's at. My other son stopped on his own. And today he owns his own business, his own home, and just ran for the mayor of his little town. My oldest daughter is, is attempting to get into a police force. My other daughter it runs a doctor's office, a doctor that she married. My other daughter is in Germany with her husband who's in the Air Force. And my youngest daughter is a paralegal. And all these children, all six of them, because I lost one, all six of these children were doomed to live the same life but because of you and the interventions, methods that you've given me to take home to them, they've all been saved. How could I ever repay you for that? I can't. There's a little thing I say, <clears throat> I owe, I owe, I owe, off to a meeting I go. And that's the truth. Because if I'm not here for the new person, and that's what I'm here for, is the new person. Because if I don't pass it on, I cannot keep it. This is a give-and-take program. This is a give-and-take fellowship. I married that second man for his money. And you know, spiritually, um, I, I stay pretty fit. I have not gotten very far financially. I have less now than what I came in with. But I, I heard a little saying that's so true. Money can buy you a very nice dog, but only love can wag its tail. And that's true. And that's what you've given me. You haven't given me a lot of money or a big fancy car, but you've given me love, love that I, I never knew anything about until coming to you. You accepted me the way I was. And that's what I try to pass on, that Alcoholics Anonymous loves you warts and all. And that's what this is all about. Um, <clears throat> my favorite chapter, really, in the big book is a vision for you. Uh, I was a kid, I would, uh, newspaper or whatever, I start from the back and go front. If I get a book, I read the ending. If it's good, I read the book. If it's not, I don't. <laughs> and so when I got the book Alcoholics Anonymous, I read A Vision for You. And that was a happy ending, right? So I started from the preface on through. <clears throat> but it says in there, you know, that our book is meant to be suggestive only and that we hope and believe it contains all you will need to begin. Well, it has contained much more than that for me. I mean, much more than that for me. And it goes on to say that we realize we know only a little that God will disclose more to us as time goes on. And God has disclosed more to me about my character defects, about amends I need to make. And I'm very slow in making a financial amends. I don't like to part with my money. 
uh, because now I'm self-supporting through my own contributions. I don't collect welfare and I don't marry for a living. I support me because uh, through you giving me the ability to go back to school and get an education, I can take care of myself today. In fact, I just put my husband through school and that's a result of you. And it goes on to say that if I ask God in my morning meditation what I can do for this woman who still suffers, the answers will come if my house is in order, if I've done my fourth and fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth steps properly, and that if my relationship with God is right, obviously I can't transmit something I don't have. And it goes on to say that if I see to it that my relationship with God is right, great events will come to me and past countless others. And that's two of them sitting right there that I sponsor here with me this weekend. When I was drinking, people wouldn't even go across the street with me. And there's girls willing to take off work and drive all the way up here to be with their sponsor. That's love. And then it goes on to tell me that if I abandon myself to God as I understand God, if I admit my faults to him and to you, and if I clear away the wreckage of my past and give freely of what I find. And if I join you, I will surely meet some of you as we trudge this road to happy destiny. And it goes on to say, may God bless you and keep you until even that. That's my favorite passage. I believe that's the whole program wrapped up. That if I can do those simple things, trust God, clean house, and help others, I will never have to drink again. And that's my goal. I plan to stay sober forever. I can only do it today, one day at a time goal is to, to maintain my sobriety. I'm not here temporarily. And when somebody asks me, will you temporarily sponsor me? I say to them, do you plan on staying sober temporarily? If you do, let's not waste, let's not waste our time. You know, I'm looking for permanent sobriety here. So, Somebody said to me one time, Sue, everybody has a spot in AA. There's a spot in AA for everybody. So you just find yours and you stand tall in it. That's what I hope I'm doing and I hope you do too. And thank you. Thank you again, Fred, for asking me. Thank you for sharing your miracle with us.